Father, bless your word. Consecrate it. Set it apart. Bring it to pass. Help us, Father, to represent it in the world by who we are, by what we do, and by what we say. Let it ring true in our ears so that it will be true in our hearts and evident in our lives. Give me, Father, the Spirit's power and wisdom to preach it in the right way. But regardless of what I say, Father, I pray that in the hearts of those who hear, you would speak the truth by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob, now at the center of our story, is on the road in chapter 28, both physically and, you could say, spiritually. Because it's time for Jacob to grow up, to grow up spiritually, because he's going to be the father of a nation of God's people. I think if each of us knew Jacob personally, if we could have gone back in time and gotten to know this guy a little bit, we would probably be able to list a lot of Jacob's faults. I think like anyone, including us, those shortcomings were probably easy to find if you were looking for them. And Scripture actually records a few of them for us. Even in what we've already studied, and if we take note of them as we go forward, we're going to see even more of Jacob's shortcomings. I thought of a few off the top of my head. He's a man who relies on himself, relies on his intellect rather than relying on God. We've seen some examples of that. He has a tendency to turn to God only after his schemes have brought him trouble. And he needs God's help to get him out of trouble. And like his father before him, he fails at times to assume the leadership role in his family. Isaac, we've seen already, had this tendency to let the leadership role that he had fall to the wayside. And we're going to see Jacob follow in those footsteps to some degree. And generally, if you want to wrap Jacob up under a single view, he tends to fight against God rather than working with God. That's his tendency. And as we're going to see through the whole course of our study of Jacob over the succeeding chapters, those personal traits foreshadowed to some degree the traits of the people, his namesake, who come from him. That is the nation of Israel. In many ways, Israel historically mirrors the traits of Jacob personally. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Meanwhile, we have God in his life beginning to instruct him. I think one of the most amazing things about the relationship we have with the living God, the same relationship, of course, that is guiding Jacob in his life, one of the most amazing things about that relationship is the way he works in our lives to grow us spiritually. It's been said that God saves us where he finds us, the person we are when he finds us, but he loves us too much to leave us there. That's the nature of the God we serve. And so it is with Jacob. And so today we study in Jacob's life his travel now to Haran. This is the place he's been sent by his mother and father, the place his uncle lives, Uncle Laban, because it is time for him to find a wife, and as we remember, it's a good time to get out of town because his brother Esau is seeking to kill him. And his journey to Haran now is going to begin a 20-year boot camp, as I think of it. A spiritual boot camp in which God is going to use the circumstances of this 20 years to bring Jacob to a point where he can actually trust God and follow him in his life. And that journey begins today with a promise, and it will end in chapter 32 with a test. So it begins with a promise and it ends with a test, and today we're going to study the promise. Go with me in chapter 28. We pick up in verse 10, which is where we left off. Read there with me. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. 
He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob leaves his family's traditional home in the land. That is the the place of Beersheba. This is not land they own, but as you remember, this is land that they have secured for themselves from King Gerar. And they have spent most of their lives there. Now he leaves and he goes northeast. If you have a Bible with a map of the region, you can locate Beersheba. It's in the southern half of the land of Israel. He moves now about north by northeast. And that route would have taken him through Hebron, followed by Bethlehem, followed by Jerusalem. Not that those places had those names necessarily in that day, but in those regions he's moved through. After about 50 miles of travel, which would have been about two days or so of walking, he reaches a place called Luz, L-U-Z. Now, Luz is near the border of the land of Canaan. This is really the last town you're going to see before you leave the land that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land we call the Promised Land. He's within a day of crossing the River Jordan, and when he did that, he would walk outside the land. Now, that's a significant moment. I want you to remember, his father, Isaac, has never done this. In his entire lifetime, Isaac never left the land. So here you have Jacob preparing to do something his father had never done as a matter of faith, as a matter of a testimony to his belief in God's promises. And yet Jacob is ready to do that very thing, to cross the border. And he doesn't know at this point whether he'll ever come back or not. It certainly is hope to come back. But he knows that life is unpredictable. So he's reached this important moment, this this threshold of sorts. And night is upon him. So in that day and age, you didn't travel at night, certainly not alone. So he beds down on the ground. We're told here in the scripture that he takes a stone and he places it, quote, under his head. Now, there are two things about that description that should tell us we need to take a closer look. First, the mere fact that Moses thought to mention it. You know, the fact that he talks about this stone and that it was put down, he puts his head on that whole routine is out of place in the narrative because it seems like a mundane detail. And yet the very fact that it's there catches our attention and then leads us to question why it's there. Why would he include such a meaningless detail? Well, there is meaning there and we need to discover it. The second thing we should note is who sleeps with a rock as their pillow. That was no more comfortable in Jacob's day than it is today. We would no more do this than he would do this. Simply put, it makes no sense. That description does not make sense. And it means something else, or it should mean something else. And sure enough, it does mean something else. Because the phrase in Hebrew 
doesn't actually say what my English translation says. It literally says at his head, not under his head. I don't know why the NASB has chosen to translate it under. In fact, there are several notable English translations that get it right. The New King James, the New English Translation, among others, show this in the correct way, which is at his head, not under his head. Well, why am I making such a big deal about a preposition? Well, because this explains why Moses recorded the detail when you get the language right. The rock, in this case, is at his head while he sleeps because it is a weapon. He has placed a rock nearby in the event that he has to wake up in the middle of the night and defend himself against somebody. This is very similar to what you see in in, uh, 1 Samuel, where Saul is seen to be sleeping at all times with his spear at his head during his pursuit of David in the desert. It's the same idea. It's like some people today sleep with a gun next to their bed, I guess, or some people have a baseball bat underneath the bed. This is the same principle, something I can get to quickly. Well, that explains why Moses recorded it, because the detail of the rock tells us that Jacob was in fear for his safety while he was in this travel. He felt vulnerable. He felt alone. He sought, even as something as simple as a rock comforted him during these travels. I want you to consider the situation he's in as we watch him in our mind's eye. He has been sent away by his father to a place that even his father himself has never gone. He has a brother at home seeking to kill him. He is wandering now through a strange land by himself, which was a very dangerous way to travel. He's headed to a place he's never been to people he does not know. He can't be sure what's going to come from this when he gets there. He doesn't know that for sure he'll ever come back home. Under those circumstances, wouldn't you agree his fear and his uncertainty is justified? Wouldn't we share it? But Jacob's forgetting something. In the midst of all of this uncertainty and all of his travels, he's forgotten that he is in covenant with the living God. Jacob may not have the support and the protection of his family. He may not have an army of men here walking with him to defend him. But he's got something a lot more important than any of those things. He has the Lord of heaven and earth committed by his own word to protect and bless Jacob regardless of what he faces. And even though that promise was focused on an inheritance in a certain plot of land, that's the focus of the promise. The land was really at the center of it and his descendants owning that land. Nonetheless, the promises and blessings of God are not limited to that place. It's not as though God showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and each in his own day said to him, this land is the special blessing for you. It's magic soil. As long as you stay on this land, you'll be okay. And if you leave it, you won't be. That's not the way the promise was expressed. And the psalmist wrote it best in Psalm 23, the psalm we all probably know more or less by heart. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the most important earthly consequence of our relationship with a living God, with the Lord, by our faith in that new covenant that we have. The most important earthly consequence is we have the Lord on our side Wherever we are, no matter what happens, no matter where we go. We never will experience again life alone, whether we're with anybody else or not. 
We are never truly alone. We are always in his care, according to Scripture. We are only as vulnerable as he allows us to be. We are only as afflicted as he chooses to permit. And we are only going to carry those burdens he permits us to carry. Nothing happens outside his sovereignty. Nothing can come upon us that he doesn't permit. The book of Job is the classic example of that truth. And therefore, our trials, whether they are the result of our own sin or the result of someone else's sin, nonetheless, they only come according to the will of God and ultimately for our benefit, for some eternal good purpose. When you reflect on the trials and tribulations of life, do you ever think about Paul sort of as your model or as your example? Remember what Paul said in Romans 8.31? He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what Paul is not saying is that no one will ever be against us. What he's saying is, so what? What he's saying is, who cares? I mean, when you get down to it, if the God of heaven and earth is for us, what difference does it make who might line up against us? Because they are lining up against God. I've probably told this story at times in the past, but it it strikes me as a great example for the moment here again of that time when my wife and I were standing in our kitchen And we have a door from our kitchen into the garage where we keep my car. And one night we're in the it's late. We're in the kitchen and we hear the car start. Have I told you this story? You want to hear it again? Okay. And we look at each other with that look that says the car should not be starting on its own. And of course, within a microsecond, your mind is thinking someone's in our car starting my car. Right. And we run out. You probably at that point you shouldn't run out. But I ran out, opened the door from the kitchen and looking in the garage. And there's my car backing out with a stranger in it. And of course, you know, your mind thinks, what do I do? So I run to the side of the car. I pull the door open Well, the car's still moving backward. And I, I thought, you know, if I leave the door in this position, it's going to impact the side of the garage and rip the car door off and who knows what else. And I like my car. So I said, I'm going to close that door and let him out of the garage. Then I chased after him and opened it again. By that point, he was careening down the street. I couldn't get in. I just, it just happened. He drove, drove off, right? So I'm standing in the middle of the street watching my car drive down the street. My wife said something I'll never forget. My wife said, oh, buddy, you're in trouble because I'm in covenant with the living God. That's a presence of mind I didn't have because I was thinking other thoughts. But, <laughs> but that's exactly the truth, right? That guy didn't take a car from me. He stepped into the life of a believer who's under the the protection of God through covenant, and he offended the living God. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that car naturally, you know, I'm going to get the car back. It doesn't promise any specific outcome. It gives me hope and confidence, though, to sit back in my circumstances and say, God permitted this. He's got some purpose in it. The test is, how do I respond? My wife won. I failed, at least in the moment. That's the lesson here that God wants to bring to Jacob as Jacob is preparing to depart the land that he's always trusted in, that he's always felt confident in because God has said, this is land I give you in in the eternal realm. What God wants Jacob to know is you're leaving your family. Yes, you're leaving the land for a time. Yes, but you're not leaving me. You're not leaving the promises. So as Jacob sleeps, what does God do? He brings him this vision in a dream. Now, this is the first recorded vision given to the family of Abraham through a dream. This is God now sending a message to Jacob through this dream. And in Jacob's dream, he sees a stairwell 
that is on the ground, but reaching up into heaven. Now, my translation uses the term ladder, which is where we get that phrase. You probably heard Jacob's ladder. But the word in Hebrew is salam, and it literally is the word for staircase. Again, I don't know why they've chosen ladder, but you need to imagine a staircase. And on this staircase, Jacob sees angels moving. The description is of angels ascending, meaning going up the staircase, and then descending. Then at the very top of the staircase, not standing on it, but above it all, we're told, the Lord is there. And he speaks from that vantage point to Jacob in the dream. Now, before we look at what he says, before we look at the Lord's words, I want you to consider just the symbolism of this picture that's been portrayed for Jacob in the dream. First, you have the stairwell or the staircase into heaven. Now, that makes a really clear statement all by itself. In fact, I doubt I even have to spend much time explaining it. The symbolism is there is a pathway to God from earth, a picture of an access point to God. In fact, if you go back to Genesis When we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel, remember the purpose behind that structure as men created it in that day? It was said to be a place in which they could reach to heaven. The entire intent of that building was to get to heaven. In fact, many scholars believe it was designed like a pyramid, like a ziggurat, which is a pyramid with stair-stepped sides. So a kind of staircase, if you will, where men thought foolishly that they could make something that could reach to heaven. But what God is communicating to Jacob is there is such an opportunity. There is such a access point to me. And that access point has been made possible by me through my covenant with you. You have access to me. And then the second piece of the imagery is the angels. They're said to be ascending and descending. That suggests very strongly communication, interaction, an exchange taking place between heaven and earth. You may know that the word for angel in Hebrew is not actually angel. That's our English word. The actual literal translation of the word for angel in Hebrew is messenger. That's what an angel is to a Hebrew. It's a messenger of God. The writer to the Hebrews in our New Testament teaches on the specific function of angels as messengers when he writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's the role of angels, ministering spirits to the believers, to the children of God sent to serve us. And Jacob now sees as a visible reminder that God works through these agents, through these ministers, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And then there's two other details that are worth mentioning in this vision. First, this is one of only two times in the entire book of Genesis that angels are mentioned. Not the angel of the Lord, mind you, that's a reference to Christ, but angels, plural. There's only two such moments in all of Genesis. This is one, of course. The other one, not coincidentally, is the moment Jacob returns to the land and sees another vision. In both those moments, he sees the angelic realm. The second thing that's worth noting here is that the angels are described first as ascending, then as descending, and not in the other way around. It suggests the angels carry news to heaven of events on earth so that then heaven could respond to meet those needs and direct a response through the angelic realm. Finally, at the top of all this, you have the Lord. Clearly, 
it is a connection between Jacob and the Lord specifically. It tells Jacob unquestionably that God knows your needs. God has made a way possible for him to interact and and support those needs. And he is prepared to send you what you need. Now, let's put that vision together and the symbolism and understand the message that Jacob is supposed to take away. What is he supposed to take from this dream? What's he supposed to understand? Well, first and foremost, you're not alone. You're not laying in the middle of the desert with a rock at your head as your only form of protection. You're just an angel away from me at all times. And the angels will be constantly moving between you and I in heaven. And if the vision were not clear enough, then the Lord, standing at the top of this staircase, he speaks to Jacob in this dream. And what does he say? He begins with the restatement of the covenant, the same covenant he gave to Abraham, then to Isaac. Now he restates to Jacob. For the very first time, it's the first time Jacob's heard it from the lips of God. He will have land, he will have descendants, and through him there will be a blessing to Gentiles. The gospel, in other words. Now, reminding Jacob of the covenant is extremely important at this point because that's the basis for everything that follows. Why does Jacob not have to fear being alone? Why does Jacob have confidence that God will be with him? Why does Jacob have a staircase with angels going up and down? Because of a covenant. That covenant is the means for all those other things to be possible. Remember what the writer of Hebrews told us in chapter 6? He says in 6.13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I surely will bless you and will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath gives as confirmation an end to every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he added an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. If I could sum up that entire passage, it would be this way. God, by his promises, has put a hope in front of each of us that is ours eternally. Now, the question is, will you take hold of it? And I'm not talking about your salvation. That hope is your salvation and it's been given to you. Done. You're saved by faith. But now the question is, according to the writer, are you going to take hold of that hope? Live by it? Experience it? Let it guide your thoughts and actions. That's Jacob's issue right now. He's in covenant. That, that's not in doubt. But he's lying in the desert with a stone in his head because he doesn't feel the hope that's been provided through that covenant. And God, in his grace, shows up in a dream and says, let me remind you. In verse 15, the Lord moves away from the promises. And look what he says, something he's never said to the other patriarchs because he's never had to before. He says, I am with you everywhere you go. I will bring you back to this land and I will accomplish everything I have promised. You can't get more specific than that, can you? Spoken to him in a dream. So if the imagery of the dream wasn't enough and the reiteration of the covenant wasn't enough, God goes to the extra step of personally guaranteeing Jacob's safety. You're going to leave. You're going to come back. 
This reminds me of the scene in the Gospels where Jesus gets in the boat and says, let's go to the other side. And as he's sitting in the boat, the storm comes and the rest of the disciples are freaking out because they think they're going to die. And we always point back to the way Jesus started the trip, don't we? We always go back to that first statement and we say their lack of faith was reflected in the way they didn't take to heart what Jesus said at the outset. We're going to go to the other side. If they knew who he was and they knew his intent was to go to the other side, then it wouldn't matter to them what happened in between because they could be confident in God's word. Well, in a sense, that's what God's giving Jacob here. I'm telling you you're leaving, but I'm telling you you're coming back. So you don't need to worry in between. What a reassuring message, especially in light of his state of mind. Now, naturally, we would expect at this point that Jacob wakes up, perks up and says, no problem now, I've got everything I need, right? And because of his understanding, he would just be resting in those promises. Well, unfortunately, spiritual growth and maturity does not come overnight, even with a dream where God appears. And not for Jacob, not for us either, I would suppose. Because he heard God clearly, but he gets it all wrong. What we learn immediately is hearing God and understanding God and following God obediently requires more than one night. It requires practice and diligence and experience, none of which Jacob has. So Jacob, without those qualities, runs off into the wrong conclusion about what all of this means. Isn't this interesting? We can see it. He didn't. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under or next to his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously, the the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Well, that's a very generous terms, Jacob. That is just really considerate of you. So he wakes up from this awesome dream, right? Nothing like anyone in his family has ever seen before. None of the other patriarchs have had a dream like this. Right? He wakes up and his first conclusion is what? This is the special place. The Lord is in this place. He concludes that the Lord has actually marked out this particular spot as important. So important, in fact, that he is essentially saying God can be found in lose. Only now because it's. God's place, we're going to change the name. So he changed it from Luz to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. This is God's house. What an awesome place this is. It's the gate to heaven. So if I want to get to heaven, I just need to be here. (laughs) All right, look, he's making the age-old mistake. We still make this mistake today, don't we? What's the mistake? We mistake the spiritual with the physical. And in so doing, we, whether we mean to or not, we limit God. We limit him. So in our day and age, it's about the building of church, right? Oh, you, you can't do that in the house of God. You can't wear that in here. This is the house of God. It's a building. You know, it's nothing special. We know that, right? But the point is we think differently about it without even consciously being aware of it. We limit God to a place. And some particular traditions in the church are more prone to that than others. Uh, we certainly don't have a lot in this building 
to think well of. So, I mean, it's just a place we don't really get to attach to it. But there's some that are stained glass and so on, and it gets more important for them. But the mistake here is missing the point of the message, because ironically, the message was exactly the opposite of what Jacob interpreted it to be. Did you notice that? God's message here was, I'm not limited to this land. I'm not limited to a place. I'll be with you everywhere you go. Jacob's conclusion is, this is the place. In fact, he memorializes it in God's honor as a result. By the way, Bethel does become very important in the Old Testament. It's second only to Jerusalem in how often it's named or mentioned in the stories of the Old Testament. But the point is still unchanged. The point is, this place is only important in the moment because it happens to be where where he's lying down. It's not going to be important when he moves. When he's in Haran, what place is going to be important to God? Haran. Where Jacob goes, God goes. As a result of what Jacob concludes, he makes this vow. And look how he begins the vow. He begins with the word, if. Now, in full disclosure, the word in Hebrew can actually be translated since as well as if, they're synonyms. So that leaves open some interpretive alternatives. You could look at this as a confirmation that he is faithfully following God at this point, rather than as a conditional statement, which is the way it's translated in my Bible. I think the context tells us that it should be if, not since. More importantly, the life that you're going to see reflected in the next series of chapters reinforces the thought that this is an if. That Jacob, in other words, is setting some conditions in front of him for how and when he will obey God. He's been encouraged by this vision. He's taking some heart in the fact that God is there. But he's also concluded that God will be here while he will be in Haran. And so he puts a condition before God. He says, If God will be with me while I am outside the land, then I will return here. And if I return here, then I will honor God with my tithe. He's bargaining with God. He's not the first. He isn't the last. And we've probably all done something similar at some point. It often happens in the case of a crisis, right? If a child is sick or if a job is on the brink of being lost or we have a health issue or something, we put this in front of God. If you will do this, then I promise I'll always go to church from now on. Samuel's parents did something similar. Eli says, this son now is dedicated to God. So it's not that it's always going to be a wrong thing to make an offer to God in that respect. The mistake, though, is in setting it up as a preposition, as if you have some doubt about God's faithfulness. As if, were God not to grant us what we want, that it somehow reflects negatively on God. Or that somehow we didn't make the right bargain. We, we set up rules and we set up the relationships that have no bearing on the true relationship we have with the living God. The true relationship we have with him is that even when we are faithless, yet he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That what he does, he does for his own good pleasure and according to his glory, not for what we may happen to want or think is good in a moment. Sometimes those things align. And when they do, it's simply evidence that we have come into his will. Many times they won't. Because we don't understand his will. Jacob has set up this bargain. But God has already said, you don't need a bargain. I'm with you. I'm bringing you back. Jacob goes off half cocked. It kind of reminds me of a story of a young boy who encounters God for the very first time, but he doesn't understand what he's seen. This is a 10 year old boy. He was failing in math, as it turned out. Now, his parents were not religious people. He had never been to church, never heard anything about Religion, didn't know anything about Jesus or or Christianity. 
And his parents were distraught over the fact that he was failing in math. And they tried everything they could think of. They got tutors. They, they sent him to hypnosis. I mean, they, you name it. Never, never helped. One day, a friend suggested they send him to a Christian school that was nearby because they had a high academic program, and they thought maybe that would make the difference. So they were nervous a little at the thought of sending their children into a religious environment for the first time, but they were so worried about his math scores that they were willing to try anything. So they sent him off. First day of school, he comes home, and to his parents' shock, he walks into the house, doesn't say a word, goes into his bedroom with this determined look on his face, and opens up all his math books, spends the rest of the night working on math. Comes out for dinner, still not even a word about what school was like or what this math assignment was. Just focused, focused, focused. Comes, has meal, goes back into his room, just goes right back at work till bedtime. And most of the first quarter of the class here runs like this. The kid is just focused on math. Parents are beside themselves. They're not sure what to expect, but they're afraid to say anything because they don't want to ruin what's apparently a good thing. Well, then the first quarter report card comes due, and the kid brings it home in a sealed envelope, sets it down on the kitchen table, and just sits there with his hands folded. And the parents are not sure what they're going to find, so they open it up. And staring them in the face is this red A right next to math. And they're astounded. They're, they're beside themselves. They're overjoyed. They look at their son, and they said, what worked? What, what was the success? Was it the teachers? The child says, no. And they said, well, the strict environment, the, the high academic standards. What do you think did it? It wasn't those things, he said. The textbooks, the computers in the classroom, the curriculum. It's got to be something. He said, no, none of those things either. He says, on the very first day, I walked into that school and I looked up. And when I saw that guy nailed to the plus sign, I knew they were serious. <laughs> that kind of mistake is a sign of immaturity in the faith, right? And we get a piece of the message sometimes in our Christian walk, too. In fact, we all are somewhere in a continuum from knowing nothing to knowing what God knows. Now, let me break it to you. You never get up here. You never get up here. But what you do get along the way is increasing understanding and maturity, which drives behavior change and so on. And today, I think Christians commonly think that God meets them on Sundays in a place we call church, forgetting he's with us everywhere we go, and that the experience we are supposed to have in that everyday walk of learning who God is through his word, through prayer, through submission to leadership in the church, through brothers and sisters who counsel us, through all the various disciplines of the body, is supposed to move us forward on that continuum, not just in what we know, but in who we are and how we relate to God. I'll give you one more great example. This is a true story. The ministry we have obviously gets questions on the web all the time. People write with questions, theological questions. I got one this recently I've never heard before. I don't know if I'll ever get one that tops this. But it's such a great example of someone who has a little bit of knowledge, but they're sort of on that weak end of the, of the spectrum. You know the rapture, right? We've talked about that here in times past. The fact that on a day in the future, at the moment God determines, there will be a resurrection of all saints, those who have died and those who are still living. And among those of us who may have the privilege of still being alive for that moment, we actually move from our current body into our new eternal body in an instant. And we are raptured in to the heavenly realm to join those of the faith who have died before us. Well, someone had heard me teach on that and they had a question. They wrote to the ministry and they said, when the rapture happens, if John gives Bob his kidney and then the rapture happens, does the kidney of Bob come out with John's body and go to heaven and leave Bob without a kidney? How does that work? 
I had a friend of mine answer it by saying, well, it depends on whether Bob is an unbeliever or not. <laughs> but it just goes to show that we can have a, the, the germ of an understanding and lack some of the finer detail. That's fine. It was a legitimate question. But when we miss those details, it leads us to make false conclusions about God as well, which is what happens here with Jacob. These are not moments of shame for us. These are not moments in which we are being shown to be wrong. They do, on the other hand, highlight that we have some degree of immaturity and we need to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we can move beyond that. So when people tell me, well, you study the Bible, Steve, that's fine for you, but you know, I don't really need to know all that stuff. I just want to be a Christian. You know what? You can't get there from here. You can't become whom God truly wants you to be in Christ without having the mind of Christ. Because this is the fuel for this spiritual engine driven by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And what Jacob knew in the day was enough to understand that God had a relationship with him. But what he lacked was an appreciation of the depths of the relationship, the distance of the relationship, the degree of the relationship, and the demands of that relationship. But God's not going to leave him there. And over the next 20 years, God's going to bring this man through one trial after another, faithfully keeping his promises and growing him in the understanding of who he is and what he expects. Praise be to the Lord that he is willing, in all our cases, to do that hard work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a reminder that you are ever-present, always faithful, and desiring that we become like you, that we follow you in faith and obedience and that we reflect you to the world. We know these things, we hear these things, Father, but we also forget them. We have a lot of growing to do, Father, but you have the power to help us with that growth, to bring it forward. I pray, Father, we would have hearts and minds that are dedicated to learning your word, to living it out, to reflecting it in the world where we live, that we may glorify you by not only what we do, but by who we are. Thank you, Father, for a church in which the environment exists for us to explore that growth. Bless our time in communion, Father. Send us out from here ready to do your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.